So I'm going to reread the passage for us real quick. Abe did a wonderful job, uh, but I just want to do it again just in case. And so we're from Mark uh, 7. We're going to be 1 to 13. And starting in verse 1, it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, uh, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So this is a very meaty passage, and usually we kind of go line by line and and exegete it. But today, I'm actually going to focus a little bit on the subtext uh, in between the verses. And I want to start with a story. Uh, I thought of this this past week. I was hosting small group at my house, and so I was kind of in charge of providing the food. And one of my uh, small group members humbly came to me, and they were like, you know, can I help you, uh, you know, uh, get drinks or something? I'm like, yeah, sure. I think we always get water there. Like, you get some juice or something fruity. I don't know. So like, totally cool. And so she comes uh, to my house, and she has, like, this box and this case of, like, cans or something. And I'm like, oh, like, like what is that? And she tells me, what was it called? She tells me, I knew it, Spindrift. And I was like, Gazootite. And she said, no, 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 no. It's like, it's a new drink. It's kind of like uh, LaCroix. And I was like, you know, as soon as I heard LaCroix, I was uh, disappointed. You, those of you know who know me know I have a thing with LaCroix, but our small group is interesting, right? Like, we have a lot of people who are vegan and vegetarian and, and gluten-free. So I'm like, you know what? They already don't like tasty things, so maybe they'll like LaCroix. You know what I'm saying? And so I was like, okay, that's cool. You bring the, bring the dandruff to the table, and we could try, try it out. <clears throat> and so and as I suspected, everyone's drinking it and having a good time, and I'm like, don't really like it or whatever. And finally, one person, actually my co-leader, uh, she questions me, and she's like, David, like, why don't you like these drinks? And I'm like, besides the fact that it tastes like a single Skittle dissolved in water, you're like, besides that fact? And she's like, yeah, like, I feel like you're exaggerating. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's like, it's chill. It's not, it's not that bad. But I thought about it, I was like, you know what the problem with it is for me? Like, you have water that is so satisfying, and you have fruit that is so tasty. And you pick something that's neither satisfying or tasty, and it's way more expensive. Like, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me, right? This is a spiritual application, don't worry. 
And everyone's like, what are you talking about? And, and so I thought of this story actually this week when I was reading this passage, and specifically verse 8 stuck to me. When Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I thought about how tragic this statement is to the Pharisees. I mean, if any of you guys know about the Pharisees, these people have been waiting generations for the Savior. Like, like they've been waiting a long time to see the Messiah. And finally, the Messiah is right in front of them, accessible to them, and they miss him. They, they don't hear his word. They don't ask him for counsel, for healing. Why? Because of the traditions, it says, of man. And I expand that definition a little bit. I, I think what it's saying is that their culture, their expectation of what the Messiah should have been like is actually clouding their vision of what he's actually like. You feel me? And I'm like, it's like they're drinking LaCroix. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, they have accessible to them something way more satisfying, way more flavorful, way, way more, like, nourishing. But they've settled for whatever image or, 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 or whatever their tradition or culture has said God is like. And it's a watered-down, less satisfying version of what he's actually like. But how tragic that is. And then we sing that song at the end where we're naming all these characteristics of God. And I was in the back and I was thinking about it, you know, miracle worker, light at the end of the darkness. And I was like, how many of us would say that we've actually seen and experienced that in our own lives? How many of us actually are just like the Pharisees and because of our tradition or our history or our theological background, we have this image of God that we sing or we say, but in reality, if someone were to ask us, give me a time where you saw God be a miracle worker in your life, I think a lot of us actually would have difficulty coming up with an example. And so I think a lot of us, if I'm honest, are settling with our image of what God is like. Like, like a lot of us are believers or Christians because our parents were, right? Or, or we went to this school or we met this, or th this friend and they told us this is kind of what God's like and we sing the songs and we, and we believe it and we say it. But in reality, we have access to God as well. Jesus is in front of us. If you're a Christian, he's made his home with you. But a lot of us, we don't access him on a daily basis. And we've settled with our LaCroix God, watered down, filtered, not really what he's like. And how tragic is that, that we too can see God every single day of our life and we settle for a watered-down version of him. And so the thesis of my sermon 
is that our tradition, our culture, actually holds us back from experiencing God, from hearing his word, from seeing him for what he's really like. Not just the songs we sing or the theology we're supposed to believe, but with conviction in our lives, seeing him anew every day. And so really quickly, I want to talk through just three uh, things that I think are traditions or our culture values uh, that often makes us, what I would say, miss God for who he really is. And the first thing is that our tradition uh, values being productive over being present. Being productive over being present. And this comes really from verse 1. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, other translations say when they gathered around him. If you do a quick uh, Greek study of this gathered around phrase, you see it comes up four uh, previous times in Mark. And every other time it's used, it's like a positive use. It talks about uh, disciples or followers or people who are gathering because they want to experience Jesus. They want to hear his teaching. You feel me? So this is the first time it's actually used almost in a menacing way. Like, like they're cornering him, like they're ganging up on him. And so it shows you a distinction between the Pharisees and the other followers of Jesus. While they all gather to hear his word, the Pharisees aren't as concerned with what Jesus and the disciples are saying. What are they concerned with? What they are doing. Their actions. Reminds me of a story. I told a story before. Um, a couple years ago, I was a small group leader, and I was walking past uh, Dollop. You know Dollop, the coffee shop? Right? And it has those big windows you can see inside of it. And so I see one of my small group uh, members inside the coffee shop. And I have this bright idea to kind of like sneak up on her and like scare her. I'm like, you know, it's me. What's up? You're awesome small group leader. Um, but I thought, you know, I didn't want to like scare her too much. And it's like makes a scene and she like calls the cops. And so I was like, what I'm going to do is because since she's close to the cash register, I'm going to very loudly order a drink so she could hear my voice and be like, oh, my goodness. Mr. Otua, you know what I'm saying? And so I, I, I go up to the cash register next to her, and I'm like, I would like a large coffee, like my best, like, you know, Mufasa voice. I'm like, I would like a large coffee, please. And I look at her, and she doesn't even notice. She's just doing her homework or studying or whatever. So I say, and I would actually like a muffin, please. And I look at her, and she's not doing anything. And those of you who know me, I don't even like coffee. I don't even like muffins. But I'm ordering all these things to get her attention. I'm starting to panic because I'm running out of money, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like just trying to get her to look at me, and she, and she never does it. So if I have a bucket full of things I don't want, I throw it on the desk. I'm like, you didn't even look at me. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, you know, too, I'm so sorry. I'm like, don't, I'm so sorry, me. I was there for 10 minutes trying to get your attention, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, if you came to small group more often, maybe you'd recognize my voice. And so she didn't come the next year. It was really awkward. But um, I still tease her about it. I was like, you were, you were just so engulfed in what you had to do and being productive and working that literally you weren't present. And you could not hear anything I was saying to you. And it's an innocuous example because what I say is not that important. But it becomes a much more serious example when we think about how we often let our busyness and our crave to be productive keep us from being present and hearing what God is saying to us. And so in the passage, we see 
uh, the Pharisees, once again, they're preoccupied with this command to wash your hands before you eat. You know what's crazy about this? They made it up. Like God didn't give this command. And people actually believe they made up like maybe three to four hundred commands to add to what God said. They, they made it up and they're, they're, they're arguing in there and they're trying to shame Jesus and the disciples for not following it. And it just shows you how preoccupied the Pharisees were with good actions and good works. And, and it's like they're, they're like us. They're susceptible to believing that productivity is ultimately where our focus should be. I've said this before. I mean, I, I truly believe in our culture today that we might be the most obsessed with efficacy and, and efficiency and productivity than any other culture in the history of the world, possibly. Uh, even now, if you go to places, they nap for like seven hours during the day. You're like, what? They have like 30-hour work weeks. Something like, I worked 30 hours like last Monday alone. You know what I'm saying? And, and to me, it's just incredible how this culture, how tradition of man has told us that we should find our value in what we could produce. Since we were kids, can you produce good grades? Can you produce a good transcript? Can you produce a good, a good resume? Can you produce a good relationship, a good Instagram picture, a good caption? I don't even know what people be doing. These can you produce whatever you need to produce? It better be good. And, and like the Pharisees, we are, we are convinced that our worth is tied to the good things we can produce. And I'll be real, some of us, we're addicted to the work. We're addicted to the busyness. We're addicted to being productive. And so like the Pharisees, many of us, we're not seeing God. We're not hearing God, like actual God in our lives. Because tradition has told us, be productive more than be present. I remember a story um, where I was helping babysit uh, baby Lucas. I don't know if he's here today. I don't know why they told me to help, but I was helping. He somehow survived, and the parents came back. Uh, and I was, like, watching TV on the couch. And as I'm watching it, I'm looking at, like, a documentary or whatever, I hear, like, cheering in the corner all of a sudden. And I look, and it's uh, his mom and his uh, dad and Steve are next to him as he's on this rug, and they're all cheering and going crazy. And I'm like, like, what happened? Like, why are y'all so excited? Why are y'all so hyped? And like, dude, you missed what Lucas just did. I think he's like two, three months at this point. I'm like, what did, did he do a somersault? Did he, did he do a backflip? Did he solve a math problem? Like, what did he do? And I know like, he moved his neck back. And I was like, like, before the backflip? We're like, what do you mean he moved? And like, no, 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 he just, he moved his neck. So I didn't want to be a hater. I mean, I'm like, he's like too much. I didn't want to like discourage him. I'm like, oh, okay, you know. I think Steve saw the disappointment in my voice or my face, and he was like, David, if you just knew how important it is for babies to move their neck, you know what I'm saying? I was like, I'm about to move your neck, Steve. You talked to me about that. But, but I, I thought about it. I was like, you know what? He has a point. It's important, whatever. Uh, but for me, I think there was something else at work, right? Uh, to me, his mom and his dad and Steve, I guess, were, were so excited that this baby, their child, was in their presence. I think he could have done anything. Right? He could have burped. He could have threw up. They would have cheered. They would have been happy. They would have had a smile on their face. Why? Because to them, 
it's not about what he's producing and whether it's, it's impressive, whether it's enough. He loves, they love him simply because of who he is to them and because he's in their presence. And so tradition doesn't want you to know that you have a God that is actually not that concerned with what you produce. Like, like he's actually not that concerned with how productive you are with your week. Like tradition doesn't want you to believe or to know that he wants you just to be present with him. And so the question I have to ask is, are you too productive to be present? And I know a lot of you, I mean, you guys, are, you guys are like me, you're overachievers, right? You're go-getters, you're ambitious, and you work, and you work, and you work. And some of you, you have sleepless nights. But I have to ask, because I love you guys, like how many restless nights have you had? Not because you have a project to do, but because you have a savior that you want to talk to. And you're like, I just, I, I feel far from him right now. I feel like I haven't heard from him in a long time. So I'm going to stay up and I'm going to pray. And like an unfinished, outstanding uh, homework assignment, I'm not going to rest until I hear from this God. I'm going to seek after him and seek after him because I long more than anything else for my identity to be one who enjoys to be in the presence of my parents more than one who simply produces because a tradition or culture told me I'm supposed to. And so the Pharisees, like many of us, they were okay with a version of God. They were okay with not seeing the real Messiah in their lives because they were preoccupied with being productive. But the good news is that God still calls us to gather around him. And even if you're like an infant in your production with him, he wants to be with you. And he wants to speak with you. And he wants to guide you. And he wants to lead you. And that's what Christ has done for us. And so I thought of Mary and Martha and how true it is that Jesus right now is in many of our homes. And we could be like Martha. I could freak us out. We could run and do the dishes and, and try to cook and try to, you know, I got a, what's that called? A Dyson, Dyson the floor, right? Because we think that if we're busy, God will be impressed with us. Or we could be like Mary and let God's word actually impress on us simply because we sit at his feet. And so tradition tells you that you have to value being productive but God cares about you being present. And the second thing that tradition tells us is that tradition values uh, being honored over being humbled. Being honored over being humbled. I experienced this a little bit yesterday. Uh, I went to a kimchi workshop, kimchi making workshop. Shout out to Grace. I don't know, Uni Kim, Helen, no one's here. But it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. And like I, we just made kimchi, basically. And so y'all know me. I was like, how can I eat as much food as possible while doing as little work as possible. You know what I'm saying? And so we had a lot of volunteers there. I was trying to be like, oh, can you show me how to cut this? 
oh, I didn't see it. Can you cut this? You know, I'm trying to get them to kind of work for me and help me out. And I think one of the volunteers, they kind of caught on after a while, uh, and she rebuked me, and she was pointing to other people at the table, and she said, look how good they're doing, David. Like, like look how excited they are about it. I thought you were competitive. Or are you only competitive about things you're good at? That's what she said to me. I was like, dang, you know? And I don't want to name any names, uh, but that's how Karis talks to her pastor. I was like, come on, girl. And so, you know, I was like, cool with that. I was like, whatever, you know, I was like, laughed about it. Um, but I was crying about it later on uh, in my room because uh, it kind of hurt. But I was like, you know, it's, tr- it's true. It- it's like, it's real. Like, I am most competitive about things that I'm good at. Like, if I'm going to step into the spotlight, if I'm going to talk smack, if I'm going to bring attention to myself, I want to look good at the end of it, right? And I think I'm maybe not alone in that. I think all of us have a desire to be honored. We, we want the praise, we want the accolades of what it looks like when we do something in our strength and our giftings, and people around us are like, wow, that was so amazing. That was so great. And we don't want to, you know, cut kimchi and look like a, a dodo bird. So we like, you know, we, 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 we skip out on the things that will make us look weak or reveal to other people that we don't actually have it all together. And so I was thinking um, about our desire uh, to be affirmed. And how it's very much a thing that our tradition, our culture, once again, reinforces. Actually, I saw a study. It was like, if you do well uh, when you produce, if you do well in your job, uh, most people, I don't know if it's most, but some people would prefer uh, actually just being uh, uh, complimented or like shot out uh, by their boss over a raise. Like, that's how much they value just being honored. Now, I, I don't know who they're doing a study with, and if that's you, let's talk, because my love language is definitely a raise over words of affirmation. We could do a switch or something. Um, but it ties well with the first point, doesn't it? That we don't love being productive just for the sake of being productive oftentimes. It's not about what we produce. It's actually about the accolades that a production gives us, the honor the production gives us. And so from many passages, including this one, we see that this is something the Pharisees struggled with. They loved being praised. They loved being honored. And I think this is one of the traditions they had that made them miss Jesus. If you look at verse 3, it says uh, that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And it's a little bit actually uh, misleading because it's kind of an exaggeration. It wasn't the Pharisees and all the Jews. In fact, it wasn't even the Pharisees and most of the Jews. It was mostly just the Pharisees that would do this and their disciples. And... What I mean is that the common Jew, most common Jews weren't actually following all these rules that they had. And so it makes you wonder, why did the Pharisees, why were they so uh, stringent about it? Why would they keep it going? And this is just my conjecture to a point. And I thought to myself, you know, it may have been difficult for the common Jew actually to regularly commit to this ritual washing. The Pharisees were at the very least middle class, upper middle class, had access to a lot of water, whatever they needed for these purifying uh, rituals. But for the common Jew, it might have actually been hard. So I thought to myself, perhaps the Pharisees 
are just like me. They're legalistic and they're competitive and they're judgmental about a law, a thing that they know they're naturally better at than other people. They're naturally more inclined to follow this than the common Jew. And so it seems like part of what they simply wanted to do was not have these rules to help other people see God, but to have these rules so people will look at them like gods. You feel me? They wanted to operate in their strength. They wanted to shine. They wanted to be praised. They wanted to be honored. Because that's what their tradition, their culture, had told them was important. So I wonder for us, I mean, how often do we also operate simply in our strengths so that we're honored? And bear with me a little bit. Um, To be honest, I think there's some of us who are terrified to hear God. Like, some of us are actually really chill with the LaCroix because we're like, if I got the real thing, I might not like what he's asking me to do. Because it seems like more often than not, what God will do is actually not make sure you're honored, but make sure you're humble. And the way he will do that is often by asking you not to serve or do things in your strengths or giftings, be competitive about the stuff you're good at, but actually to do things and go to places that will expose you, that will show people you're weak, that will show people you're vulnerable. I mean, think about how doctored our lives are, especially in the church. How often we show people the best sides of us. Oh, look, I travel. Look how good my relationship is with. My, my significant other. How often do we post, I like just fought my significant other, right? How often do we post about the doubts that we have, but the struggles that we have, so that people actually see us for who we are? And I think of uh, the story of Gideon. And Gideon, if you know the stories in the Old Testament, it's the book of Judges, and it's right after Israelite, Israel was captured by another nation. And God goes to Gideon, and God's like, yo, I want you to uh, fight this nation and rescue Israel. And Gideon goes, are you sure? Because I'm from, like, the smallest, weakest clan and tribe, and I'm, like, the weakest person out of my family. And God's like, yeah, I'm sure. The Gideon says, okay. And he gets uh, 32,000 soldiers with him to go and fight the other army. That sounds pretty good, right? 30,000 sounds pretty decent. What we learned, though, is that they were still outnumbered four to one. And so for the Moody people, that's like at least 128,000 people that he was facing with his 32,000. And so he goes, and I think he's kind of gearing up and ready to go to war. And I don't know if this is heretical, but to me, this is some of the most swag and swagger God shows in all of the Bible. Because what does he do? He goes to Gideon and he says, you have too many people. You remember this story? Gideon is outnumbered four to one. And God goes and says, too many people. That's a swag right there. And so I have to believe personally that Gideon was kind of at a crossroads. I think maybe he was like the Pharisees. Maybe he thought that God had called him because he was special. That God and his 32,000 people uh, were, were going to slaughter this army. 
And then they would write songs about him. You know what I'm saying? They write poems about him. They build statues of him. Right? You get fed with those grapes or whatever they'd be doing. Like, like he would be a big deal. I think maybe he saw glory. He would be honored. So maybe he was ready with his 32,000 to go. But now God was saying, go with 10,000. And I think suddenly he wondered, this might expose me a little bit. Like maybe I, I was strong before, but this might humble me a little bit. People might see my weakness. People might see I'm not, uh, I'm just a mortal, I'm just a man. But he humbles himself rather than seeking to be honored and glorified. And so he goes. And what does God do? Swagger. God says, ah, you still have too many people. He has 10,000 at this point. He says, no, I want you to go with um, 300. Y'all thought King Leonidas was the first one, didn't you? See, you didn't know. Gideon, with 300 people, is asked to face an army of 128,000 people. That's too much math for even my wheat and brain to figure out. And God, in case Gideon didn't quite get it yet, makes it clear in the passage. Judges 7, he says, I want you to do this. So Israel cannot say that they saved themselves. You see what God's saying? Gideon, you will not get honor. Gideon, you will not get glory. Israel will not get honor. Israel will not get glory. Maybe because of your faith, for your obedience, but that's about it. I will get honored, and I will get glory. And people will see that if they call on the name of the Lord, then they will be saved. And I think that this is, the, this is the, 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 um, the risk, this is the danger when we live lives that are too uh, doctored. I think there's a time and place to present ourselves and to look good. But if we do it too often, you know what could actually happen, real talk? At the end of your life, people can look at you and they can say, oh, I get why Abe went to that school. He was smart. Oh, I get why Abe moved there. He was capable. I get why Abe had that job. Oh, he was clever. I get why Abe had that wonderful film. Oh, because he was this. He was that. They can look at your life and they can say, oh, I get why all that happened. It was a good life because they're smart and they're capable. You know what they won't say? God did that. And to me, we have to have, I'm like way off script now, but we have to have Areas in our life where people look at it and say, they could not have done that themselves. You feel me? If, if you are a believer, you are a light that's a shadow pointing to a bigger light. Saying, look at the weakness in me. Look at the vulnerabilities in me. Look at the insecurities in me. And see that if anything good comes in that area, it's because of God. And so when people look at the end of our life, they might say, ah, oh, he was I." But he had maybe great faith, and so I saw a great God. And to me, this is what we have to fight against in our tradition, because our tradition will convince you to be strong, and it's up to you. And you can save yourself, and you can impress other people, but I'm telling you that no one will see the glory of God in your life if you don't let them see where you're weak. If you don't humble yourself and ask God, God, are you maybe calling me to a different job? Are you maybe calling me to move somewhere or stay here? Are you maybe calling me to something bigger than what I'm doing now? 
should I actually pray prayers that aren't like generic and broad, but like specific and bold? And if we're willing to be humble, I'm telling you, God, his glory will shine in our life and we'll see him and hear from him in ways we never have before. Way off script, way off script. I want to tell one quick story about my dad. Um, he was probably the strongest guy in terms of appearance I knew. He was always very put together. He's very clever. He went to Harvard. He got like a double degree in engineering. Uh, he always said the right thing. You know, he, was, he never showed weakness. And I, as a kid, you know, I always wanted to emulate that, right? But there's one place where he'd be weak, and it always bothered me. But whenever we would go to church, whenever we would worship, he would worship on his knees like this. And I'm telling you, it bothered me. Because as a kid, you see this great man who you think is worthy of being honored and exalted, and he goes to his knees. And it took me a long time to realize that for him, he was saying, God is worthy to be honored over me. And I just want to say that one more time. I, I, I think this is maybe all I was really supposed to say to you guys. This is our life. To let God be honored through our humility. And so Jesus uh, tells the Pharisees in verse 6 and 7 and 8, he says, man, you guys are hypocrites. Because with your lips you honor God. And you talk about honoring God. Talk about how great God is. But your heart is far from him. And so you're worshiping him in vain. Because in the end, it's about honoring yourself and sticking to your traditions. And so my prayer for you guys truly is that your lives would preach the gospel without words. People will look at your life and say, man, God's doing an amazing thing. They have great faith. And so I see a great God. Let me move forward. We have to fight the tradition that tells us that being honored is greater than being humbled. And so very quickly, I want to end with um, the last thing I think tradition tells us. That being transactional is better than being relational. Being transactional is valued over being relational. And so I get this idea from the passage, the last couple of verses, really quickly. Uh, Jesus is describing uh, what happens. There's this rule that's actually from God this time. And the rule is that you're supposed to honor your mother and father. And it's with whatever kind of surplus uh, a profit, what money you have. You help them out when they kind of are at a point when they need the monetary help. But the Pharisees, like they always do, they added rules to it. What they said was that if you took that money and instead you said, hey, this money is reserved for the temple or for God, that you no longer had to help your parents. And so I thought about that and I said, you know, what, what would uh, make a child cut their parents off from their financial help? And very simply, I thought, I mean, it must be that there is some sort of relational strain. And rather than them say, let me work towards loving them again or forgiving them or, or somehow reconciling, they said, you know what? You are no longer profitable to me, so I'm going to cut you off. And that's what I kind of mean by a transactional relationship. I think our culture, it doesn't often say it explicitly, but I think our culture, our tradition, often tells us that the way we treat each other should be pretty transactional. Like they should give you stuff and you should give them stuff. But as soon as a deficit is greater than the gains, 
you should bounce. And there's niches and there's circles. It's, it's crazy to me where, where it literally is like self-care above everything else. And I believe in self-care. But my question is at what point are you called to actually live in a deficit? To actually have relationships that cost you more than you gain from it. And I um, have weeks. I mean, this is too real. I don't know. But for me personally, I struggle with this. I mean, even times where I come to church, you know, and I try to be the welcome person out there. I try to be nice and say hi to people. And sometimes I don't want to talk to anybody, you know. I'm like, I, I, I don't feel like I have energy, the social energy to do it. And some of y'all, you'll you be telling me your life story. Every time I see you, you'll be telling me your life story. You know what I'm saying? And you know what helps me, though, go and live in deficits at times? It's not trying harder. It's not working harder. It's not telling myself I need to be more productive. But it's remembering that Jesus did not have a transactional relationship with us. I want to end with this really quickly. You notice in verse, um, in verse 2, it says the Pharisees saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And then in verse 5, it says, why do your disciples walk according to? His disciples are the ones that broke the rules. You see that? But they address Jesus. Why? Because uh, the teacher, the religious leader was actually accountable for what his disciples did. And this is what I mean when I say Jesus does not have a transactional relationship with them or with us. He did nothing wrong. He didn't even, from what we saw, break this rule. They weren't giving him anything. And yet, what did he say? What does he say about us? Us who have constantly settled for a watered-down version of him. Us who have constantly been way too busy to see him. Us who have rejected him time and time again, not believed in him. What does he say? He says, do, do not accuse them. Accuse me. Address me. Doubt me. Ask me. Arrest me. Strip me naked. Put the thorns in my hands. Uh, torture me. Spit on my face. Hang me up on the cross where everyone can see me. I'll be naked. I'll be ashamed. I'll be everything for the people I love. It's not transactional. We've given nothing to him. And he's given everything to us. And that's the only way for me personally. When I remember that love, and then I could love other people. Not in the same manner, but in a better manner. When I remember what Christ took on for me, I'm willing to take on more for others. And when I remember um, that God just wants to be present with me, I no longer feel the urge to be productive. And when I uh, know and that God wants to show his glory by humbling me. I'm okay with not always being honored. And so my prayer, again, is that you guys will not settle for anything but the real, tangible word and presence of God, no matter what. Let's pray.